Father in heaven, today, once again, we take up our study of, uh, of your word. We are so uh, grateful for the parallels in scripture that connect us from the past to the present and even into the future. Thank you for prophecy and how you um, have seen these things before they came and how the things that lie ahead of us, you also want us to not only know about, but be prepared for, and especially in our relationship with you. So guide our conversation today, we pray, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've, uh, we've been taking our journey here a little bit in the Exodus and the Advent movement. And we're looking at the parallels and the types between uh, the past and the anti-type in the present and using those uh, nice theological terms, basically the symbols and what the symbols mean in terms of fulfillment. One of the points I would like to, to make as we start off today is that it is fascinating that God is so precise. You know, we, we, the world out there tends to think that, you know, God just takes anything and everything and he just kind of floats along with the, with the flow of things. And, and, you know, if this happens to happen then, that's fine. And if it doesn't, you know, I mean, that's the way a lot of people think of God. But when you study the Bible out, God is precise. When you get into the New Testament and you hear the New Testament writers saying things like, when the fullness of time was come, and then you begin to recognize how precise that was, we're not talking about within a few hundred years. We're talking about precise. We're not just talking about uh, within a year or so. We're talking about precise. When you take the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, and you recognize that the children of Israel had had this prophecy for so many years. I did. Yeah, that's better. For so many years, they had this prophecy of the 490 years and its connection also with the 2300 days. They'd had this prophecy. You all know what I'm talking about, right? Um, if I'm confusing you, come talk to me afterwards. But with the 490-year prophecy and the precision which with, with which the angel Gabriel identified for Daniel what God's people could expect and how that it was, the time was cut off from the, uh, uh, the command to build and restore, restore and to build Jerusalem until the time when the Messiah would come and the details in relationship to that and how precise that was, you realize the children of Israel should have known, the Jews should have known they had the prophecy and God fulfilled the prophecy just the way he said it was going to happen. So much so that the Messiah, the one who was going to be cut off as spoken of in the prophecy of Daniel 9, was cut off on the Passover. He wasn't within a year or so. He was precisely in the year, in the three and a half year period of time, at the Passover, on the very day 
All of these things even tie us back to the Exodus. God is precise. Luke, he had Luke. Luke was a physician, and his details are important to us because he not only wrote down the gospel story, and he basically says, you know, he got this information and kind of compiled it. That's my summary of this. He pulls this all together. But then he happens, happens, <laughs> the details he happens to pick out are the ones that identify the precision of God. He tells us it was in during the reign of Caesar Tiberius, okay? He tells us all of these kinds of things, these details. So we can actually go back in the, in, in our, in, through archaeology and history and identify the very year these things happened, the very time these things happened. So Jesus not only was baptized on time, but he also died on time and was resurrected on time. And all of this should tell us something about how God works. So, very precise. So when we are dealing with this whole issue of the Exodus and the Advent movement, don't take it lightly that God cares about the details and takes the types and the anti-types and shows us the kinds of things that will happen along the way. Now, be careful, I'm not trying to tell you that he's going to be precise in terms of telling us when he comes, because he clearly said, Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour, right? Amen. So don't fall into that trap, don't get into it. All I'm saying is, as we look at some of these um, parallels and we see the precision at which God connects the past with the present, don't be surprised. That's, that's my point. All right. Everybody got one of these now? One from yesterday and the one for today. Okay? Yeah, we want to have you. want to make sure you do. Oop, there you go. Okay. All right. We're going to use the one from last time because I didn't get all the way through what I intended to do. And it's a really good thing because the copy machine just broke. And uh, I was able to uh, make enough, I think, to get us through today. But the really bad news is this copy machine broke and we think it's old enough that there are no parts. <laughs> so I don't know what they're going to do to solve that problem. Anyway, it's all right. I was able to print it out. I've got a printer and there are other devices around here that make it work for us so that we've got all we need. But I want to start today uh, with kind of picking up from where we left off. And just for those of you who are new, uh, just a little clue into what we're doing here. We are using a document that was written by Taylor G. Bunch, a Seventh-day Adventist minister uh, who lived uh, quite a long time ago, but was a pastor of the Battle Creek Tabernacle. And he wrote a 250-page manuscript, and that's why you're seeing it in manuscript form. And uh, he didn't type it quite like this. Somebody's retyped it. But at any rate, he... Um, he shared the, this information as a study on a Sabbath afternoons for a period of time. It might have been a Vespers or something quite like that. And Morris Venden, some years later, got a copy of it given to him by a professor when he was in college. doesn't name the professor. 
And he took from that and wrote a, a smaller version of that. And uh, I happened to get both of those. Uh, Morris Venden was a professor of mine, uh, not professor, pastor of mine when I was at Pacific Union College. And I've been fascinated by this because there's some parallels in here that are just deep and worthy of study, and, and, uh, and that's what we're sharing here. So we're in, uh, going into chapter 6, and in chapter 6, uh, the night, midnight of deliverance, we're not trying to get through everything. And by the way, I do want to make sure that if you are new today, that you will make sure your name is and address is on this sheet. So Tom, if you'd do that, because what I'm going to do is I, when I get back, I'm going to make a copy of the whole document, and those who attended the class, I'm going to provide them a copy of the whole document for their further study. I'm only intending to whet your appetite by what we're doing here and see some of the neat parallels that are there, and you go back and continue your study and use this as a basis for your study, and maybe you'll come up with more of, of your own, and you'll write another one. Is your name Bunch? Just in case... If your name is Bunch, then I'll know that's the case. All right. So let's, uh, what I'd like to do is we did, yesterday we kind of finished uh, out of chapter 5. And in chapter 5, we're talking about the, uh, the whole experience of the plagues and the judgments that came on the children of Israel and the parallels that we saw there and their connections with our own, together with some interesting facts of the kinds of uh, ways that the, um, yeah, send it all the way back, pass it all the way back. Uh, just in case somebody else needs that. So anyway, we had this whole situation where uh, we were looking at some of the details of how the gods were affected and being attacked by what God did with the plagues and how they, you know, they had multiple gods. They didn't have just one god, but they had multiple gods and they were doing all of that and the interesting parallels that we saw with that. There are 35 chapters in Bunches book here, but what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to take us through, because he kind of jumps back and forth a little bit. What I'm trying to do is take us a little bit in kind of a chronological way. And as the children of Israel got through the time of the plagues, the next thing that happened was the last plague that led to their deliverance, right? And that we know occurred at midnight because the Bible's real clear. We're going to look at that in just a moment. Once we've looked at the midnight deliverance, I want to take a look at chapter 16, which talks about the journey from Egypt. He has some other things in between, but I'm going to jump over to that journey from Egypt, um, and not all the way to the promised land, but they begin that journey and the kinds of parallels that connect with that. So, all right, anybody else need to sign that sheet? We're all good? All right, great, thanks. So... That's what we're going to start with. That's, I'm just giving you a little bit of an idea where we're, where we're going today. All right, let's start first of all with the Word of God, Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. So take your Bibles, please. And we're going to uh, read through the story we all know so well, but let's remind ourselves of some of those details. Let's start with verse 3. We're going to carry through to verse 14. Once again, let's share in the reading. Pardon me? If we didn't, we should have. Thank you. I appreciate that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we uh, get started today, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide our study. And we thank you that you 
are in charge of our lives and that you have something you want to reveal to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know why, but it's sounding like I did pray. But anyway, here we go. Never hurts to pray twice, does it? And we certainly want to pray at least once. Here we go. Verse 3. I'm going to start with Marilyn over here, and then we'll kind of cross the tables and come back that way and go that way and work our way back, and then that way. Verse 3 first. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a house. Okay, you know the context. Context is they have been going through the plagues, and now God is getting his people ready for that final plague. All right, Tom. And if uh, the household be too little uh, for the lamb, let him and his neighbor, next unto his house, uh, take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your account of the, for the lamb. Okay, verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, and you shall take it from you. The goat, the sheep, or from the goats. Okay, verse 6. Now you shall keep it unto the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in front of you. Verse 7. And they shall take from the door two doorposts. And on the night, on the outside. Good. Verse 9. They shall eat the flesh and the light roast with fire, and the one who burns with the flesh. 10. Eat not of it from Versailles at all water. Roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the Puritans. 11. And skip nine and that's because eight got hidden down be here and I turned the page and I was over at nine and didn't realize I skipped it so would you read nine for me please <laughs> okay great thank you thank you for not letting me get away with that <laughs> I was trying to figure out I mean I was right there but anyway I have the remnant Bible it's got those little paragraphs in it. Those of you who know the Remnant Bible, quotations from Ellen White, and verse 7, you've got it. You can see what I did, don't you? So I didn't catch that last verse down there. Okay, all right, good enough. The Passover. 
Well, you know, I think we as Christians have enough knowledge about the connection between the Passover and the death of Christ, right? I mean, the parallels here are, are significant and they are powerful, and it, it is no coincidence about how these things happen. Again, this is Christ, God being precise about what he is leading his people into and helping the people to know what, uh, what was really going on around them. The Jews should not have been surprised. They had, the, they had the prophecies that were precise. They had the experience of what was going on around them precise. But they had pre-programmed their own minds by their preconceived ideas of what was going to happen when the Messiah came, that they had stopped their study of the Bible and started their following of their own man-made and man uh, and their own uh, conceived ideas of what they wanted to have happen. It's always a dangerous thing in our relationship with God and our study of the Bible. Are Seventh-day Adventists susceptible to that? We have a challenge, don't we? We can come up with our own idea of what we think God wants to do and how he wants to do it. We only have safety in the word of God. That's why Ellen White and Great Controversy makes it clear that many will be deceived because they do not know the word of God. They have not made the scriptures their safety net. And we can't afford to do that. So a study like we're doing here is helping us to get into these things and, and to what we've already talked about some of the things that we can avoid by recognizing these uh, connections and these parallels. Um, the author Bunch says, Escape from the tenth and the last plague of Egypt was possible only to the Israelites who sprinkled the blood of the slain lamb on the doorposts of their dwellings. That's the first sentence after that, rereading that uh, passage of scripture. And then a little farther down, he says, this is the only thing ever acquired of the Israelites to protect themselves from the plagues. And the interesting thing is, as you look at this, you know, the, the challenge you and I face today is the same challenge that God's people have always had. What is the difference between obedience and salvation by works? And the answer is found in this whole experience. To be obedient is not to try to earn salvation through your works. What would disobedience be? It would, yeah, it would, it would be, I'm, I'm trying to think of the right, right word to, to use for this. The word I want to use is insubordination. If God is in control of my life and I choose not to be obedient to him because I'm saying, you know, Lord, with all due respect, I know you want me to do this, but um, a little bit legalistic here, aren't we? Um, you know, if I do that, they're going to accuse me of legalism, and so maybe I need to do it a little bit my own. Where, you know, that's kind of where we get to in all of this, isn't it? 
When somebody wants to make an excuse for saying, look, I'd rather do this. I'd rather eat that. I'd rather go there. I'd rather, I'd rather wear this. I'd rather, you know, all of those kinds of things that we have excuses for. As we talked about the Sabbath yesterday, in being obedient to God's expectations of us in relationship to the Sabbath, the issue is, are we simply being self-willed and disobedient, or are we being obedient to Him? But the beauty of the study is, we're going to see just as we get into this a little bit here in a few minutes, there is a clear identification of God's role in our lives and that we do not save ourselves. And you're hearing me say that again and again because I really want that to be clear to us. So as we look at the, the children of Israel being instructed to put the blood on the doorposts, here the issue is if they were obedient and put it on, they survived. If they didn't, they died. Really, what's going on here? So let's keep on with this. Um, I'm sorry? <laughs> you caught the parallel. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, The blood, on chapter 12, verse 13, Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Obviously, this is where the Passover term comes from. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Imagine for a moment that you are a male child and you are the firstborn. That would be me. I'm also the only born. <laughs> All right? And you know that God has said through his prophet that the firstborn is going to die unless there's blood on the doorposts. Now, I heard somebody talking about this recently. I think it was Doug Batchelor was talking about it. And as he was kind of describing the situation, all right, here you are and and uh, um, you're, the, you're the firstborn in there, and it's 10 o'clock at night, and, and uh, uh, you know that at midnight is when this is supposed to happen. And your dad, who is not a firstborn, he's a secondborn, um, you know, he just hasn't quite gotten around to slaying the Passover lamb yet. And he, he just, you know what, he, he's just not there. Dad, you know, <laughs> it's 10 o'clock at night, you know. I mean, aren't we supposed to be, you know, doing, yeah, don't be legalistic. You know, we're going to get around to it. It's okay. You know, the firstborn's got something invested in all of this, right? Now, whereas, okay, let's just say that that father just never gets around to it. Well, you know what happens, right? Firstborn dies. What about in the home where the firstborn, the father, you know, it's five o'clock in the afternoon and the instructions are just getting around because, it, you know, there wasn't a lot of time lapse in here and all that was happening. And the firstborn hears the message and the father hears the message in this home. The father says, first thing we do is find that lamb. 
and get that lamb and slay that lamb, take the blood, hyssop, do everything that was expected of them, all on time, as expected. Is that an act of faith? Yes. Or is it an act of legalism? Why is it an act of faith? Because you're believing what God told you to do. That's exactly right. Because you are assuming that by putting the blood on the door, Dennis, that you're going to still be alive the next morning. And that assumption is based upon your faith in the blood. So the putting of the blood on the doorposts is not an act of legalism. It's an act of faith. But it's an act of faith based upon your relationship with God, the God who loves you so much that he cared enough to tell you what he expected you to do. Look at what the author says in that paragraph under that verse that we just read, the mark of God. And as you think about the mark of God, where have you heard that term before? Because Taylor G. Bunch is using that term here in a very specific way for a reason. And I'm just going to read that paragraph. This is the one paragraph I'm going to definitely read. The sprinkled blood on the doorpost was a token of redemption, a sign of God's ownership, a pledge of security, a mark of obedience. This mark secured the safety of those who exhibited it from the wrath and judgments of God. Deliverance from bondage and the last plague depended on their what? Faith in the sprinkled blood, which was symbolic of the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God. The angel of death passed over every home that had the mark of God's approval and protection. His avenging sword was unsheathed in every other household in the land. The mark was an outward sign of obedience and showed that the inmates were worshipers of the true God and were obedient to His will. You ever heard that term mark before? <laughs> and you know, that's, that's the way we think. It's the mark of the beast, exactly. But there's another mark. Well, that's one that's true too. But hang in there. Don't get too far ahead of me. Take your Bibles and turn to Ezekiel, which is referred to here. And this, this time, I'm, this particular lesson, I'm going to work through. It's kind of one of my favorite chapters and I know it's about midnight, which means it's kind of a dark subject. <laughs> but I, I want us to look at what is being spoken of here because there are some important parallels to what you and I are facing in our own lives today. Go to Ezekiel, and we're looking at chapter 9, and we're looking at verses 1 through 9. I'm interested in what Taylor Bunch says here in relationship to... Uh, what he sees it happening. We'll look at that in just a moment. But in Ezekiel 9, and now looking at verses 1 through 9, follow with me, and I'm going to read this time. Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have a, a charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each of with his battle axe in his hand. One man... Among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's ink at his side. They went and stood before, beside the bronze altar. 
Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn on his, at his side. At, and the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. Have you ever heard that verse before? Okay. Now notice, notice that the word is mark, and we tend to associate mark with the mark of the beast. But are the people in this one who receive this mark good or bad? They're good because they are doing what? That's right. They're sighing and they're crying over all the abominations that are done within it. Now remember the context is Ezekiel, and Ezekiel is writing about the things of his own time. Ezekiel was one of those prophets um, that was connected around the same time as Daniel and, and, uh, and also Jeremiah, if I got it right. I think that all through yet. And, and these ones were in different places. Jeremiah was back in Israel back in Jerusalem, and he's trying to help God's people over there listen to what God was trying to do. Quit resisting Nebuchadnezzar when he comes over here, because when he comes here, he's just doing God's work. Ezekiel is mixed with the people in Babylon, and, and I'm talking about the Jews in Babylon, the ones that have been brought over there as captive. Call them, if you will, call him, if you will, their pastor. He's the one who's ministering to them, and they are stuck in Babylon. And Daniel is also in Babylon, but ba he's got a very specific job in Babylon, and that job is what? He's in the king's court, isn't he? And he is being used in, in, a, in a mighty way uh, to connect with the government there, and that way also be able to accomplish God's work and will. you got these three prophets all working in this kind of an environment. So Ezekiel is speaking here. And let me tell you, back in Jerusalem, there have been some really bad things going on. They have been rebelling against God. And when you get into it and you study it and you begin to see, I mean, back in Jerusalem, the kinds of things that they've been doing is they've been falling down and worshiping the sun god. And they've been using God's temple as a base of operations for doing that. And God is disgusted with them. Now, he's disgusted in a loving way. He loves them, but he's disgusted with what they're doing. But there are people just... Uh, as there was in Elijah's day, who did not bow down to Baal, there are those who are just as disgusted as God and just as concerned about it, and they are the ones that are sighing and crying over the abomination of the things that are done in it. They're concerned about it. So they're the good guys. They're the good people. They're the faithful ones. And then in verse 5, to the others he said, in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens, and the little children and women, but do not come near them, anyone on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. And then he said to them in verse 7, defile the temple and all the courts with the slain, go out. 
and they went out and killed in the city. So it was that while they were killing them, I, I was left alone, and I fell on my face and cried out and said, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? And he said to, then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, and the land is full of bloodshed, and the city full of perversity. For they say, The Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see it. Now, we do not have time to plumb the depths of Ezekiel, but uh, Taylor G. Bunch then says, after reading this, look at some of the things he says. The angels of death here represent the seven last plagues, and only those who have the mark of God will be delivered. This mark is an outward sign of the character of God, which is imparted by faith in the sprinkled blood of the Lamb of God. It indicates that all sin has been washed away in the cleansing blood of Christ. Of them, the revelator says... These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now you begin to think back and you parallel some things. And I want to go to Revelation right now and look at some of that parallel. Because when you go to Revelation, you see some of that connection and you see what God is seeking to do there. Yes, please. It's interesting because in Ezekiel... The man with the writer's ink horn put a mark on their head. And the ink puts God's mark, his character, on our foreheads, too. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like that. Good. Good. Okay, let's go to uh, Revelation chapter 14. And we're going to look at... Um, no, I'm actually going to go to Revelation 7. Sorry. Let's go to Revelation 7. In Revelation chapter 7, you find these words. After these things, verse 1, I saw four angels standing in the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having what? The seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, and the trees till what? We have sealed the servants of God where? On their foreheads. You know, when we're doing an Unlock Revelation seminar, and those of you who just recently gone through that may have gone through some of this again, but trying to help people as we get to the subject of the Sabbath and then also the connection with Sunday and trying to understand what it is that God is seeking to do in, in, in our lives and why this is important. These are important connections because in chapter 7 he talks about placing the mark or the seal on their foreheads and then in chapter 13 we do get the mark of the beast Okay, And then in chapter 14, he talks there again about the 144,000 of chapter 14, verse 1, having his father's name written on their foreheads. Ezekiel's prophecy portends to the future, looks to the future, and looks to the time of revelation 
which is to the time in which you and I live and begins to see these kinds of things happening. We should expect, as we look back to Exodus, we look to Ezekiel, we look to Revelation, that God is trying to help us to understand that in these last days, there are going to be things worthy of us to sigh and cry about the abominations that are done. And I... I want you to notice it's not just the abominations that are done outside of the church, but it's also the abominations that are done inside the church. And you and I have to be really, really careful with that, okay? God has to lead us, but we do need to be aware of the warnings that God is seeking to give us and what He's trying to help us with. But when we look back to Exodus, this mark that was put on the doors was a sign of people's faithfulness. It was a sign of their uh, fact that they were being obedient to God. It was a sign of their allegiance to God and what He expected of them. And the obvious parallel to our time is the Sabbath. And the, and the fact that we have so much counsel in relationship to the Sabbath. So what we looked at yesterday is being repeated again here today and helping us to recognize the importance of this uh, reality in our lives. Taylor Bunch says at the top of the next page, and again, don't, my page pagination is a little off from yours, so it may not be at the top, but it's in the next section under the Sabbath. Everybody with me? Okay. He says, the Sabbath is the sign of the Creator or the true God and also of redemption or sanctification. It is the outward sign of a character that has been cleansed from all sin by the blood of Christ. The Sabbath is therefore the sign of the sprinkled blood of Christ that alone can sanctify and make us holy. It is a sign of faith. Just as the children of Israel stuck there in the captivity of Egypt, we're told to put the blood on the doorposts as a, uh, an outward sign of their faithfulness to God and their trust in God that He would protect them from the last plague and deliver them from that captivity. So the Sabbath is the same thing for you and me. We are obedient to the Sabbath, not because God says, if you don't, I'm going to kill you, but because of the fact he says that if you love me, you will be obedient to me and it will be a sign of the fact that you're surrendered to me, you're committed to me. You know, if we understood this and we really practiced that in our lives, we'd be a lot more careful about how we kept the Sabbath. Just as that, that firstborn in the home said, said uh, you know, uh, Dad... <laughs> You know, it's 11.59. Are we cutting this a little close? You catch the parallel? And recognize that what God is trying to do with us is help us to realize that our relationship with Him is faith-based, not work-based. We, yes, are obedient but we do so because of our relationship and the faith that we have in Him. And it's again, it's that, as we talked about yesterday, it's that sanctifying power that is illustrated by the Sabbath that we're putting our faith in. We're saying, Lord, you, we're coming to You on the Sabbath because we're trusting You to change us, to sanctify us, to make us holy, 
Let's not go too far one way or the other with that. I'm, and I don't want you to come away with a perfectionism idea. But that doesn't mean that God wants us to be lazy about our relationship with Him either. So I'm not getting into all of that. So this is, I'm bringing out the element of the righteousness by faith that is expressed in this, in this study. And we're going to hit a few more as we go along. The next part of this is talking about the actual deliverance at midnight. And this is where I see God as being precise. God connects things back and forth. He takes the, the experience in the past and he brings it up into the future. And this is where we see some of this begin to develop. The children of Israel have been captive for 430 years, and their prophetic movement has started in this judgment time, but it is now getting to full swing, and they are moving out from Egypt at the time that God said He would deliver them, and He said He would deliver them at midnight. Look at Exodus chapter 11. Back to Exodus again. Exodus chapter 11, and we're looking at verse 4. Someone read verse 4 for me, please. Then Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt. And if you go to verse 5, we won't read that, but he continues on and he says that all the firstborn in the land shall die. So he says he'll go out about midnight and that's what will begin to happen. Go to chapter 12 just to see um, where indeed that begins to happen. In chapter 12 and verse uh, 29, we see that this is where it begins to actually be implemented. Someone read that one for me, please. And it came to pass that it did not be from all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh that sat on his throne, unto the firstborn born of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of God. This is, in essence, the beginning of the deliverance of the children of Israel from their captivity. Now, of course, it started with the first plague. It started with the day that Moses walked into town with Aaron and, and all. But now we're really getting into the movement part. They are about to leave Egypt. But their deliverance is not complete when they get out of, uh, of the immediate gates of, of, uh, of the capital city here. And we, we'll talk about that in just a moment. But the exodus is now about to begin, and God says it will take place at midnight. The final deliverance, Taylor Bunch points out, comes a little bit later, correct? And that is when they come face to face with the Red Sea. Again, at every step along the way, God is testing their faith. Yes? He's testing their faith every step along the way. First of all, they have to have faith in Him that He's going to protect them in their homes before the midnight angel comes through. He does. Their faith is strengthened. The blood worked, if you please. And now they are bundling up all their stuff, which they actually they, should, they bundled up before that, and they were eating that supper and they were ready to go, and then the angel comes through, and the destroying angel uh, effectively 
brings them freedom because Pharaoh says, get away from here, go away. I've got, uh, I, I don't want to see you again, which that only lasts for a little while. And then he sends them out. I mean, then the people march out. And you know, I mean, we estimate that there are about a million of the children of Israel. Have you ever moved a million people? Now we have about, during the week here, we probably have staying on the grounds about 1,500, 12 to 1,500 people. Um, on the weekends, we have about five to 6,000 that are, that are here on the weekend. Any of you ever been to Oshkosh for one of the camporees? Okay, the last one, they had, uh, I don't know, did they make 50,000? I can't remember how many they, but I think they got pretty close to that. About 50,000 people in the same place. And, and when I've been to those camporees, I've been to almost every one of them, except the last one or two. Wall-to-wall -wall people, and when they move, they don't move in a hurry, and it takes time. You've got to be organized about what you're doing. I ran a race in Chicago a couple years ago, and that race had 50,000 people in it. I'm talking about a foot race, you know. That's what you do when you run a race. I guess you figured that out. Right? And, um, and there are 50,000 people that run that race. It's pretty amazing event just to be there and see what they do. And in order to start the race, they take people and they put them in corrals. Yeah, same word that you use for putting cattle in, okay? <laughs> and I was in the very back, very last one. There's like 45,000, 50,000 people in front of me, or maybe, you know, just a little less than the group that I'm in. It took us a full hour to get from where we were to the start line once the race had started. So they start you, and then you slowly make your way forward to, the, to that uh, start line, and then that's when the race starts. You. Yeah, for me. You know, the runners up front, they, it's not fair. They had, they had a whole mile less to run. That's all right. They got done before I got started. I think some of them actually did. No, not quite. But anyway, moving people takes a lot. But God was organized, and he worked with his people, and he had a way of doing that. Taylor Brunch brings out some of that in this, this whole process of moving them. I'm not going to get too much into that, deliver, uh, that, that issue there. But in the paragraph just before, also at midnight, you see that section, that little subheading um, that says, also at midnight, just before it, he says it was a test of faith and the deliverance was sudden and unexpected. We're talking about the second deliverance. There are two deliverances that are happening, but he points out that both happened at night because the first deliverance was the children of Israel coming out of the city and moving out in the Exodus and heading towards Canaan. That was the first one, and that happened at midnight. The second one was also at night because God had the pillar of fire that was standing between the Egyptians who had decided that they needed to come and get these people back and they were living under a death decree as a result. They, you know, the king was mad now and he'd lost his firstborn and he got his senses back or whatever and his belligerence back and he decided to go and try to attack God's people and bring them back. And they're terrified when they see what happens. 
You know, we don't know. This is where archaeology gets very interesting. If you've done any reading at all about the Red Sea and the children of Israel coming out, everybody is trying to figure out where it was that they crossed, where the Red Sea was, and all of that. I've seen videos about how they found chariot wheels in the water and, and all of that. And then there are people who say, no, they didn't, and that's not a chariot wheel. I mean, I'm not going to have that discussion. That discussion is not even necessary because we really don't need to know where they were. But it is helpful for us to, to be assured in our own minds, this event, yes, it did happen. And it didn't have to be the Atlantic Ocean that they crossed. If the, if the, if the sea they crossed was only 18 feet deep, is it a miracle? When was the last time you put a million people through an 18-foot uh, deep sea? Probably not lately, right? So for God to have been able to do that and to be able to part those waters and to accomplish all of that was no significant feat. And when those children of Israel were standing there at the, at the edge of the, of the water and looking out, for them, they were under a death decree because they had one or two choices. They had to go swim in the water and take the risk of, uh, of drowning or get captured or killed, most likely, by the Egyptians coming up to take them. That was the only options they had. That's right. Exactly. So God works here and He works a miracle. Even if it's only a mile that they had to cross this is where what I've been talking about moving a lot of people really makes a lot of difference. It took some time once God opened the sea for them to get through. But they had all the time in the world, if you please, because God was standing between them and the enemy, right? And the enemy, let me tell you, if there's a pillar of fire in front of you and you can't see the people you're trying to get at, you're probably going to think twice about going into that pillar of fire and trying to go through that. Um, and obviously, the, they did. So not only did you have the pillar of fire and, that, and, and all of that, but you had the angels that were guarding them and protecting them. Those Egyptians were not going to get through that. And so they had no choice but to sit and wait until God said, all right, now you can chase them. Isn't that neat? God doesn't let that happen until he's ready to say, okay, let it happen. Because in this particular case, God is going to show his deliverance power. He is going to not only show that he can deliver the children of Israel from the Egyptians, but in the process, he's going to take care of the Egyptians. And they're not going to get the opportunity to do this ever again. When you think about them having he could have. He could have. He could have. So could God, could God have allowed them to walk across the water? I love the way you're thinking. And, and you know what comes to my mind is Peter. What happened to Peter when he got out on the water? He, 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 he lost his faith, didn't he? And he sunk. Can you imagine a million people walking out across the water and all of a sudden somebody says, wait a minute, this is water. And they lose their faith and they suddenly sink. So I think God was smart to put them on dry land because they couldn't mess up. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the parallels are there, and you can plumb the depths of this. Absolutely. That's right. That's exactly right. Challenged them at their faith level. <laughs> when they got on the other side of the Red Sea, what began to happen to them? They had other challenges to face and they were struggling with those. Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. So let's keep going here. There's a section on the anti-type. On my, um, my material, it's page 37. I think it's 38 in yours, right? Um, he lists there four items that he speaks of in relationship to the first and the second deliverance. Modern Israel will likewise experience a twofold deliverance as we understand it. All right. The first deliverance is from the sentence of death, and the second is from the world itself at the second advent. Now, we all know that Revelation chapter 13 speaks of the sentence of death, correct? Those who have the mark of the beast, who receive the mark of the beast, are the only ones who can buy and sell, right? But if you don't receive the mark of the beast, the beast says he's going to kill you. Revelation 13. All together on that? Yeah. So the deliverance, the first deliverance that we have is the deliverance from this um, decree that is given. But we're not out of the world yet when we're delivered from that. There's still another deliverance. And he points out the second one is from the world itself. And I'm looking forward to that one. Aren't you? I'm looking forward to that deliverance. And, and uh, Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let's read that, please. Daniel chapter 12. All right, someone read verse 1, please. At that time, a mighty stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of my people. There shall be a time of trouble, such as there never was since there was a nation. At that same time, and someone else read verse 2, please. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So God first delivers us from that decree that, uh, that the beast puts out and says that he's going to kill everybody. And he has a lot of things that I'm not going to take the time to get into um, here because we are running out of time. But you go through and look at some of those details and some of those connections. But he then points out that um, this text in Daniel chapter 1, 12, verse 1 and 2, enumerates four important events. Number one, the close of probation. Number two, the plagues in the time of trouble. Number three, the deliverance of God's people. And number four, the special resurrection. Now, how long it takes for these things to happen is not what's important at this, at this moment. But that we are first delivered from that decree, and secondly, God comes and delivers us from this earth. We have something to look forward to. What does Ellen White have to say about some of this? She says in uh, the next paragraph, says, When the protection of human laws shall be withdrawn... From those who honor the law of God, there will be in different lands a simultaneous movement for their destruction. As the time appointed in the decree draws near, the people will 
conspire to root out the hated sect. It will be determined to strike in one night a decisive blow which shall utterly silence the voice of dissent and reproof. Great Controversy, page 635. The beast moves to be able to destroy God's people. Now, you know, thinking people over the last few decades and maybe over the last hundred years or so have had to ask themselves, how is God, I should say, how is the world going to be able to pull off something quite like this? You're talking about people thinking in the days when there are no computers, there are no cell phones, there aren't even hardly telephones. The best they've got is a telegraph. And uh, some of those say, how is the world going to be able to connect and communicate that way? Look at our own day and age. A hundred years later, 150 years after our pioneers. And what do we find ourselves in a world that can instantaneously know what's going on in the other side of the world? Not only know it, but watch it. Phenomenal kinds of things. God in His preciseness is helping us to see what is coming into the future. And He's helping us to see it by looking at the past. And in our faith in Him, we say, Lord, we don't know how you're going to do all this, but we do see that you're going to do it. And with His precision, He helps us to realize that we shouldn't be scared of the, some of these things that are happening because in those things are the promises of deliverance that God is going to give us. In the next section, He reminds us of the promises. Psalm 91 when you read Psalm 91, you've, you have to say to yourself, Psalm 91 was written for the time of the end, period. <laughs> it just fits in there. It just makes sense. Yes, it applies to us in, in all ages, but Psalm 91 reminds us that the angels are there to protect us. He's not going to let the plagues fall down upon us. He's going to deliver us from these things. He's going to care for us. The mighty guardian angels will be around every one of us and take care of us. Do you see how faith is critical to our relationship with Jesus? It's critical to our experience in the Advent movement. If we are not people of faith, we have no hope. But in Christ, we have faith in Him. We have trust in Him because what He did in the past is proof that what He will do in the future is the same thing to deliver us. What He did in the past, He did with precision. What He says He will do in the future, He will do with the same precision. We'll say, wait a minute, that's exactly what God said would happen. Lord, I know I can trust You even though they're all around me and even though the world's falling apart, even though the destruction is here and it looks like there's no hope for us, I can trust you because of what you said. We have faith in God. Let me keep going for just a moment, okay? The last uh, little part of this uh, section here in relationship to the deliverance at midnight, Taylor Bunch points out something I find very interesting, and I want you to catch this part. In the section delivered at midnight, the next sentence says, all laws go into effect at midnight, and this will be true of the law with the death penalty. Therefore, the deliverance of God's people from the wrath and power of modern Babylon will take place at midnight. God's people are delivered from Egypt at midnight. God's people will be delivered from Babylon at midnight. That's interesting. That, um biblical calendar goes from sunset to sunset, but the, this is from midnight. Man's laws, right? 
It's man's way of operating. And God works within that structure and He takes care of us because He knows that if, the, if, the, if man makes a law at midnight and that's when the law is going to be executed, you know, He doesn't want to come in at 5 o'clock in the morning when the sun rises or whatever. He's going to be there when God's people are needed and, and how those things work. So it's a, an interesting connection there. And the last thing in this chapter is about the song of deliverance. Remember when the children of Israel came uh, across the Red Sea, I should say walked through the Red Sea, and then the, the, uh, the ocean fell in, the sea fell in and destroyed the Egyptians and all of that. There's some para- uh, fascinating things that are in there. All of that connects with how the God is going to destroy the wicked at the end of time. Just as he destroyed the, uh, the Egyptians, he'll destroy the wicked at the end of time. But remember when they came across to the other side, they sang a song, didn't they? Who led the song? Miriam led the song, right. Miriam led the song. And and, uh, this is one of the cases where I think Taylor G. Bunch is kind of just, excuse me, guessing. But he's doing it in relationship to the parallels that he sees. Again, God is precise. And I just wouldn't be surprised if this is exactly what happens. Look what he says near the end of this, uh, this chapter, just above at the, in the last paragraph. He makes this one statement. He says, As Miriam, the prophetess of the Exodus movement, led in the song celebration at the Red Sea, it may be, and see, he points that out, he says, it may be that the song of triumph of the remnant of Israel who go through the final crisis will be led by the prophetess of the Advent movement. Now, wouldn't that be neat? I think that'd be a really terrific thing. You know, whether it happens or not is, is not, not the issue. But I, again, I'm talking about a God who's precise. He has an interesting way of being able to draw these things out. He had a prophetess back in those days in Miriam. He has a prophetess in the last days named Ellen G. White. And who knows what something like that may happen. But God is in control. That's what we said at the beginning of this. We want to study this to ensure our, uh, encourage our faith and to recognize that God is powerful, that God is working, that God cares about us. And we want our faith to be rooted not just on things that we cannot see, but we also want our faith to be rooted on things that we can see. And as we look back at the, the deliverances of the past, and we look back at the way God worked with His people in the past, we can be assured that today God is going to do the same thing for us. All right, I've got a few minutes to go into the next section, and we're going to go into that. Go to chapter 16, if you would, the notes that I gave you for that. Now, as I told you earlier, the reason I'm doing this is because I'm picking out, number one, the highlights. I'm not trying to hit everything along the way here. And number two, I'm also trying to work a little bit uh, chronologically because the children of Israel come out of Egypt and then they're headed toward the Promised Land. So it seems logical that we should be talking about the trip out of Egypt, right, at this particular point. And... uh, you know, anytime you're studying something like this, how do you not talk about the midnight deliverance and then connect with the midnight deliverance in relationship to our time and, and, and all of that? 
And so you have to, you know, when like Taylor Bunch did, he's, you got to pick these things out when they show up and, and draw those parallels and those connections, and that's what he does. But I want to go over to chapter 16 and just talk about the journey from Egypt in the last few moments that we have. We're now, we're trying to identify the time here, and here he begins to talk about some archaeological things. And I know that in my study, I found that the precise date of the Exodus has been really difficult to be able to pinpoint. And yes, archaeology has, has helped us establish the fact that these things happened, but the date and its precision there has never been something that Seventh-day Adventists have staked a whole lot on. All right, so I don't want you to get, you know, encumbered by that and all. He points out the date of 1491 B.C., and the, bo the bottom line is it was a long time ago as far as I'm concerned, okay? But he does talk about the first month, and he talks about it in relationship to the, the year there. Their first month was not like the worldly calendar was. The worldly calendar centered around the way the sun went around the earth and all the other kinds of things and the connections they had with their gods and so on and so forth. But when God established the Passover, he wanted that to be the primary thing. And so it was the first month. He said that when this happens, it's going to be the first month of, uh, of, the, uh, of the calendar. And he took place, uh, the killing of the Passover lamb was on the 14th of that month uh, between the two evenings. And then on the 15th uh, at midnight, the Israelites were delivered and left Ramses in Egypt for the promised land. And uh, some of that's coming from, he's quoting from uh, Sir Charles Marston, an archaeologist, and the kinds of things that are happening there. This man, by the way, I, I did a little checking on him, and he was a well-known archaeologist, and he wrote some books. One in 1934, he wrote the book, The Bible is True, and then in another one in 1937, The Bible is Alive. And I'm going to, they're actually available. You can get a hold of them and, uh, through Amazon. You know, Amazon has everything. I have not read them, but I am fascinated by them. And I, I would like to take a look at them to see what the archaeologists were saying at Taylor G. Bunch's day and what he was reading, just to see what he was seeing there. But here is, for us, the bottom line. The children of Israel come out of Ramses, come out of Egypt, they get across the Red Sea, and now they're, they're beginning their journey. There are some choices that God has for His people at that time. There's the short way and the long way. God chooses the long way, correct? Is God just mean that He has to choose the long way? Does it always have to be the hard way? Sometimes it feels that way. One of the things that bothers Seventh-day Adventists and those who, some of those who have left us is the fact that if you talk about those who have left, they'll say, you know, all we ever did when I was an Adventist is talk about the fact that Jesus is coming again and coming again, and you know what? I mean, I heard that since I was a little baby, and I got tired of hearing it. Have any of you ever heard that? I won't ask you if you ever thought that. There is a delay. It is a longer journey than was planned, right? We get a little farther, we'll, uh, as, have we, as we have time, we'll look a little bit at what are some of the parallels in relationship to that whole delay process. But we're going to hit a few of them right now. 
I like the way Taylor Bunch says this. I'm on page 105, which is probably 106 for you. I, I'm assuming something like that. No, maybe it is 105. Is it 105? Okay, yeah, right. And the long delay says the shortest and easiest way is not always the best way. Sometimes the longest and most difficult journey is the safest, the surest, and the best in the land. But then he points out this. God did not intend for such a long delay as became a reality. God had a purpose in what he was doing, what he was seeking to accomplish, and he was trying to accomplish this. In the last couple of minutes, I want us to just notice the next couple of things down here where it talks about the Lord's plan. The truth is, in moving those children of Israel through, it might have taken them a few months to be able to do that. He brings out, as does Ellen White, that God did not take them through the shortest route because they weren't ready for the shortest route. The shortest route would have men going and fighting the Philistines. And for crying out loud, when they finally did come face to face with the Philistines, they had a hard time dealing with the situation. And so he knows what their faith level is like. They're not ready for this, and he's trying to prepare them for that time. But under the section, The Lord's Plan, and this is where we'll end today, Taylor Bunch says, The Lord never intended that Israel should fight their way into the promised land or to conquer it by warfare. You ever thought about that? You know, when you look back, a lot of what we remember is the fact that they fought. When they got into their promised land, finally, they fought, didn't they? But when you stop and think about it for a moment, when they got to the promised land and they got across the Jordan River, their first fight was Jericho. And who fought? What did they do? They marched and they shouted. And God did all the fighting. He took care of it. He did it. He did what was needed. And he points out here that the victory was to be theirs by faith. I like the fact that he points out to them that God could have fought every single battle for them by faith without them ever having to swing a sword, my turn. When they went up there and they started to mess with that and they did it in their own strength, they got into trouble. The fight is by faith. And there's a constant parallel in our study with the fact that our fight against the enemy is a fight of faith. We can't do it ourselves by all the things that we try to accomplish, but we do them by faith in what God has for us. Okay? Well, let's have a closing prayer here and ask God to be with us as we go our way. Lord, thank you so much for guiding our study again today as we go uh, into the rest of this afternoon and the evening. Bless our associations and fellowship and the time of uh, worship as well. May your name be honored and glorified. And as we continue our study in the Exodus and the Advent movement, we pray that we will see in you our strength and our hope. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit 
www.audioverse.org.